Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. Two biographers of the late Billy Graham joined me recently. You'll be hearing from former Decision Magazine editor Terry Whalen and Professor Emeritus from Rice University, William Martin, sharing observations about Billy Graham and notable aspects of his ministry. Also, author James Rubart, who has crafted a retelling of the Jekyll and Hyde story, portraying the inner struggle that Christian believers face between the spirit and the flesh. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing from evangelist Terry Beasy. He was in South Korea recently to minister to people attending the Winter Olympic Games in partnership with international sports chaplains, utilizing the activity of trading pins, including one representing the gospel. And speaking of the Olympics, the North Koreans put on quite a show on the world stage, apparently trying to alter their image, sending the sister of the dictator, athletes, and cheerleaders to the games. David Curry of Open Doors USA says not to be fooled, North Korea is the leading country regarding persecution of Christians. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Terry Whalen is an author of over 60 books. He was once the editor of Decision Magazine, a publication of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He's written a biography of the late evangelist called Billy Graham, a biography of America's greatest evangelist. He discussed with me some of the elements of the life and ministry of Mr. Graham. Here now is Terry Whalen. The last few years of his life, to be to be honest, dear uh, Bob, uh, Mr. Graham's hearing was pretty much gone. Uh, I read the other day where his where his daughter Anne had to uh, he had to put on a headset and she had to speak in a microphone so that he could even hear her voice. So uh, and his and he had macular degeneration, so he wasn't reading so much. Uh, I understand Mr. Graham was spending his days in prayer, which is you know one of the resources that all of us have, and we don't think about as, probably as often as we need to 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 be praying. We maybe don't think a whole lot about Billy Graham as a as a child, his growing up years. In this biography, I understand you included some information that really could indicate to us some of the, the different elements that, that helped to form his life and forge his character. What would be some of those instances, even in childhood, that helped to contribute to Billy Graham and the tremendous worldwide ministry that he had? Yeah, Bob, uh, Billy Graham grew up on a on a dairy farm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when your when your father wakes you up at three uh, thirty in the morning to go milk cows, uh, that has to uh, build some character into your into your life, as you can imagine, early on. But he he very much uh, worked. It was a working farm, and so he he learned to you know get in there and do his do his chores before before breakfast and that that kind of thing. Uh, also, you know, in Charlotte was in the in the deep south, and uh, Billy Graham saw uh, his his father work shoulder to shoulder with uh, an African American like like Reese Brown, for example, and and saw how the even as a kid that the the races can can work together in a cooperative way and make some great things happen, like on a farm. And so I, I think those kinds of experiences built a lot into, into Mr. Graham's life. And as he, 
you, the, there are characteristics that you can see played out as he as they organized the ministry and started started having meetings and crusades and all those kinds of things. Well, I understand that his first crusade in the in the um, the way we think of a Billy Graham crusade took place in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Of course, we think about some of the larger crusades within his lifetime, the Greater Los Angeles Crusade. He went to New York City, had a very long crusade there a while back. And so how is it that this whole concept of, of a crusade ministry really developed? How did God place Billy Graham into that type of ministry? Yeah, I think it it started it started early on. Uh, he was with uh, Youth Youth for Christ, and he was an evangelist for them. And so he was uh, traveling around the United States and even up into Canada, uh, starting to starting to speak to to groups and and see the see the response to the to the gospel message. And ultimately, he ended up uh, the the Los Angeles Crusade in the in forty nine was one of the one of the really start starts of his uh, his crusade ministry in the tent there. Of course, you know he, Billy Graham was like, you know, following following the footsteps of people like Billy Sunday, you know, that also preached in tents and things like that. So it wasn't a new kind of thing, but it was back then to the length of time that that Mr. Graham would have these meetings because they weren't just for a night or two. You know, it went on like you said, Madison Square Garden. They went on for weeks. At a time, and part of the challenge, uh, Bob, when you have ongoing meetings like that, is you know some of the same people come night after night, and so you can't just you know get up with your three sermons and <laughs> do those. You have to you have to have fresh material every single night, and that that was hard. You know, it took it out of uh, Mr. Graham. I understand he lost weight and uh, you know was exhausted by the end of those those experiences but he he grew into the into the ministry of traveling around the world and preaching the gospel and you know the the singular claim that he had as i look at it is that he preached the gospel message of jesus christ face to face more than any other person on the planet so that's a that's an amazing thing terry whalen here on the intersection you can learn more by going to the website billy graham bio Com. Another biographer of the late Billy Graham is William Martin, Senior Fellow in Religion and Public Policy at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, a professor emeritus at the university. He's the author of A Prophet with Honor, The Billy Graham Story, and he has done a revised and expanded version. Here now with some reflections is William Martin. Mr. Graham, of course, achieved a great deal more than most people ever think about achieving in a lifetime. He was probably the dominant religious leader of the 20th century, certainly no more than one or two popes, perhaps one or two other people could come close to, to what he achieved. He was the key leader, the major spokesman of the evangelical movement during that period. And that, of course, has become one of the strongest in all of world Christianity and world religion, and he played the major role, though not the only important role in that. But he did it in a number of ways. He did it by his crusades held all over the world in more than 80 countries. He preached in person to more than 80 million people, at least once to a million people at a time, and live over television to more than 200 million people. Just in itself, that was important 
in that it brought many people directly into Christian churches for the first time, and it plugged an even larger number back into their churches, into their Christian faith, on a much higher voltage line than they had previously been connected to. Something that many people don't know, I think, of many lay people, he organized conferences, international conferences, that brought evangelical leaders from all over the world, people who thought they were pretty much alone, like Elijah, I only I am left, and brought them into a sense of being part of a great movement. And those conferences also taught them and showed them how to cooperate with each other so they could accomplish a great deal more with international, uh, with regional uh, courses or gatherings and things of that sort. And then what I think meant the most to him, particularly in his later years, was training evangelists. He sponsored conferences in Amsterdam, 1983, 86, and 2000. And I got to go to the one in 1986, which uh, certainly was a, a high point for me, where his organization personally trained tens of thousands of evangelists in how to do the everyday nuts and bolts work of personal evangelism. And there were little, there were smaller versions of those conferences in other countries and regions. And those are the people who will be Billy Graham's true successors. I've often mm. been asked, who's going to be the next Billy Graham? And I could answer that at, at more greater length, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be any one person. But these tens of thousands of preachers trained by his organization, and at that 1986 conference, and he said to them, you are my successors. And as, as, as a person in media, you know that he was one of the true pioneers in the use of radio and television, including satellite television, in ways that went way beyond what we think of as television evangelists. Uh, he was politically, he was a friend and a counselor of virtually all of the presidents since Harry Truman. And, of course, it meant a lot to evangelicals to say, this is our man. Our man is welcome in the halls of power, not only in this country, but in other countries as well. And beyond just being a, an evangelist and a religious person, he was actually a, often acted as a, as a diplomat without portfolio. And one thing that I've written about extensively in the book, about four, I think it's four chapters, but is, I think is not all that well known, is how he played a significant role in opening up religious freedom in Eastern Europe, starting with small things in, hung, in Hungary and winding up in, in 1992 with a, a crusade in Olympic indoor Olympic Stadium in Moscow, where 50,000 people were inside and 20,000 people outside, and the Russian Army Chorus climaxed the event by singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, something that even when I was working on the book in 1986, I was told, well, of course, Mr. Graham never expects to, to preach in Moscow, but he did. William Martin here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the publisher's website. It is Zondervan.com. Well, The Intersection continues now with author James Rubart. He's crafted a retelling of the Jekyll and Hyde story, portraying the inner struggle that Christian believers face between the spirit and the flesh. The name of the book is entitled The Man He Never Was. Here is James Rubart now. I don't think I approach a story. I think a story approaches me yeah. where I won't even necessarily be thinking about writing a novel or a story. And I'll hear something or I'll read something or I'll watch something. And all of a sudden, this idea will just pop into my mind. And in the case of the 
man ever was. I was on a treadmill and I was working out and I was listening to a sermon by Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, who runs the church there in New York City. And he was talking about the fact that Romans 7 was potentially a partial influence on Robert Louis Stevenson writing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I thought, oh my gosh, oh my there's, there's a story there. So <laughs> in most cases, they come to me. Set this up for our listeners as you reimagined this story. What sort of context did you develop and and the the type of storyline that you crafted? Well, I set it in modern day. It's a modern, uh, I guess that's why we're calling it a modern reimagining of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Sure. So I set it in contemporary setting in the Seattle area. And essentially, it's the story of this guy named Torin who wakes up in a hotel room and the last eight months of his life have vanished, and he does not know where he, he was. And as he goes through the first day and the second day, he realizes, I'm a changed man. He had a temper problem, and the temper problem is gone. And now his consuming passion is to win back the love of his wife and his kids who he alienated because of his temper. And so the story, that's the setup. <clears throat> and he's wrestling with continuing to be this good person, but it uh, the old life starts coming back. And so as he as he began to discover this and encounter this, what are some of the ways he attempted to to deal with this duplicity? Well, he thought that the duplicity was gone. And that, I think, is the most powerful part of the novel. He thought, I'm cured. Whatever happened to me, I'm cured. And then it starts slowly seeping back in. So he is determined. He will do anything to find out where he was and what was done to him so it can be redone, so he can continue to live this life of freedom. And I don't want to say much more than that, Bob, but it's really an intriguing, so I guess in a sense, it's kind of a a mystery where he's figuring out what was done, how do I do it again, because I do not want to give up the chance of winning back the love of my wife and my kids. What are some strategies that he attempted to apply that can really be helpful to us as we think about dealing with this inner struggle that believers in Christ encounter? Bob, we have an issue in our society today. All you got to do is turn on the news or go to Facebook. We have an issue with vitriol and hate and rage and anger, and we get offended so easily. We get provoked so easily. Both those that are conservative, those that are liberal, you can both sides can point to just this 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 anger that's coming out. And so, the only solution I believe, and this is really the at the heart of the book and what is explored in detail, is love. Well, what do we know about love? We believe as Christians that God is love. Okay, great, but you got to give me a better definition than that, Jim. <laughs> yeah, All right, I'll yeah, give you a better yeah. definition. And the definition is. In the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, he says, love is not offended, ever offended. Love is not provoked. Love holds no account of wrong. And you start going, oh my gosh, Bob, I'm offended all the time. People provoke me all the time. And, and oh my gosh, accounts? Yeah, I got this list of people that have done this and this and this to me. And I started to realize that when Jesus says, yeah, you love, you love the people who love you back, what credit is that to you? That's not real love. No, it's when we can love the people who do not 
love us back. And so I started to look at my own life and say, boy, and I've got some people in my life, I'm guessing maybe you do too, Bob, and, and your listeners, where it's like, wow, it is really difficult to love that person. So how do we do it? We want to have a love that's not offended, not provoked, is kind, believing all things, no account of wrongs. And what I realized through the process of the struggle in my own life is that can only start when I love the person that I judge the most. I need to love the person that I judge all the time, and that's me. I'm so hard on myself. And if I can get to the point where I love myself the way Christ loves me, the way Abba Father loves me, then that's the only way I can start to love people outside of my circle that are not always lovable. James Rubart here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website jameslrubart.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting faithradio.org. There's a link to The Meeting House in the programming section of that website. When you go to the Meeting House homepage, you will find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more through the Faith Radio website. Also, when you go to meetinghouseonline.info, you will see links to two blogs, one is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Evangelist Terry Vesey ministers under the name of Harvesters International. Recently, he shared with me about the ministry to attendees of the Winter Olympic Games in South Korea in association with international sports chaplains. Here now from our recent conversation is Terry Vesey. At the Olympics, there's a tradition of the nations, all the, the different Olympic teams from different nations, each one has their own little pins, a little badge uh, that they make that represents uh, their nation. And and pin trading is a big, big deal at the Olympics and has been for a number of years. Uh, the spectators and athletes who attend the Olympics love to trade pins and try to collect as many as they can from as many countries as they can because, as you know, uh, there are hundreds, uh, close to 200 nations that are represented at the Summer Olympics and around close to 100 nations represented at the Winter Olympics. And... Um, and so this pin trading thing is a big deal, and God gave David the idea of developing his own pin for the international sports chaplains, and it's called the Jesus pin. And the Jesus pin is a witness uh, it's, within itself. It shares uh, using colors and, and uh, illustrations on the pin. It, it actually uh, gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with people as we approach them uh, and ask them if they are interested in in the pen trading. And, uh, and usually most people are aware of that custom, that tradition, and uh, they they are interested in, in seeing our pen and wanting to know, you know, what it represents. And so using these, uh, these international sports chaplain 
uh, Olympic pins were able to open a conversation with people in the Olympic venues, spectators and athletes, people who were attending, and uh, were able to strike up a conversation that leads to an opportunity to share the plan of salvation with them. And so that's basically what we do. We're just here to win people to Christ and to make the gospel known in this uh, very unique setting. How do you overcome the the potential language barrier there? And also, what sort of response have you seen as as people come in contact with your team members? Well, Bob, let me answer the second part first. The, The response has been wonderful. It's been very encouraging. Uh, here at, at this particular Olympics, um, most of our um, contact with people has been with Koreans. There really hasn't been a huge number of foreign internationals here. There's some, but uh, it's overwhelmingly the tenants of the Olympics uh, are, are the nationals, the Koreans. And uh, many of them speak a little bit of English. Some are fluent, and many of them know. Uh, most people who are familiar with English here usually understand more than they actually speak. And so that's an advantage. It's it's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, we Sometimes at the Olympics we'll have interpreters from those local nations that will go with us. This time we don't have that. But... Um, we still we've had the opportunity. I've only been here now for two days, uh, and and uh, already have had the, the opportunity to share Christ with uh, with probably a couple hundred people using the Olympic uh, Jesus pen, and uh, and also some literature that we have that corresponds uh, that works along with the pen, and we have some things printed in the Korean language so that even if they don't speak or understand English. Uh, the 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 literature that we give them along with the pen explains what what the pen is and what it represents, and and how to uh, understand the message of the gospel. So uh, the, the language has, has it's always a challenge um, when you are in a foreign country and you don't have an interpreter or translator going with you. But uh, one of the neat things about the Olympics, Bob, is people are very positive. They people are glad to be at the Olympics. There's kind of a, uh, you know, you've heard the term the Olympic spirit. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. And uh, we find uh, that all all the Olympics that I've attended so far, that people have been extremely, extremely open and, uh, and responsive. Insight from Terry Beasy here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to org. Well, finally, on this edition of the podcast, it's David Curry president and CEO of Open Doors USA. He discussed the persecution of Christians inside North Korea, which continues to occupy the number one position on Open Doors World Watch List. This conversation coincided with the Winter Olympics in South Korea, the North Koreans attempting to improve their image at the Games this year. Here now with some comments is David Curry. I'm really torn because, of course, the Olympic Games are meant to be a place for the world to come together in goodwill with all the other trauma we got going on. Just focus through the lens of sport on, on how we're so much alike, how we build community. On the other hand, when I see what's happening with North Korea, 
with Kim Jong-un and his propaganda campaign there at the Olympics. I'm saddened that it's been uh, politicized to that degree, and maybe that's a little bit naive on my part because I know many people have an agenda when they go into those kinds of events. But it's particularly stark with North Korea. As you mentioned, North Korea has been number one on the world watch list for many, many years. And that is a significant achievement and a dubious one because it ranks the most difficult places for Christians, for people of faith around the world. And when you look at North Korea, you're talking about a country where Christians are, are, are watched in neighborhood watches, where if they catch you with a Bible, catch you talking about about Jesus or sharing your faith, you'll be taken to a labor camp. There's 60,000, over 60,000 Christians in labor camps right now. Um, there's so there, there's so many difficult things that happen there. To the entire population, it's very difficult, of course. The hermit kingdom, they're isolated. But for Christians, it's even more intense. And so then when I watch the propaganda that goes on, I'm I'm disappointed in 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 their success, you might say, to draw attention away from from the games. Tell me what you have heard, what you've observed with respect to the church, the Christian church in North Korea. What is this? How significant is the church, and what have you found to be perhaps some of the uh, the mindsets of those that are in the church in North Korea? Well, the, the, these are strong people. Uh, they're very determined. It's it, it's been an underground church for a long time under pressure. The, and the tactics used by this uh, new leader, Kim Jong-un, who's only been in there a few years, are even more brutal than his father, if that's possible. So this is a very resilient group. If you ask the State Department and some of these other folks, you'll go on their website, you'll see that they say, well, there are no Christians in in North Korea, but we believe there are somewhere around 400, 500,000 mm. Jesus followers in the country. Um, they, oh, they, they practice their faith privately. It's very dangerous to do. But it's, but it's a strong, resilient church, and they, they care deeply uh, about, about the, the issues of faith that we care about. And so I, I always want people to know they're there, we, that we don't want them to be isolated. Uh, occasionally, Open Doors will have campaigns to write letters to connect, because we believe in connecting with the persecuted church, not just sort of sending good wishes over there, although that's important too, but also just getting in and connecting with people on a personal level, people to people, uh, so that they know they're not forgotten. David, share with us what you have heard with respect to Christians who are in North Korea that are wishing to escape. What's the layout there? Well, I don't think this is limited to Christians. I think the reason why North Korea has a border is because they know most of their people would leave if they could. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But what I often see is, is people coming to know Jesus who have who have escaped they get into the west or, or even into china or some of these places and they they come to know faith through some means and then they want to go back and share it with people in north korea it happens you'd be shocked it happens regularly that people who who do escape and then have a chance to f- figure out the faith for themselves once they realize who jesus is and what what he said 
they don't want their their family to die without knowing or hearing the message, so they go back. It happens over and over and over again. That's the, the surprising thing, is is what happens when people accept faith when they have the opportunity and how they want to share it, even though there's great danger. David Curry of Open Doors USA here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to opendoorsusa.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. Through faithradio.org, you can find out about downloading the Faith Radio app for your smartphone or tablet. The Intersection podcast is available through the app. Also at the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. There's also a link to video content, and you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for coming along for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.